anytime that Israel is reminded of why they should serve God, almost any time that Israel is rebuked for their stubbornness, they are reminded of this event where God demonstrated his power in such a way that was totally undeniable. The parting of the Red Sea occupies in the Old Testament a very similar position that the resurrection occupies in the New Testament. Both serve as the, let's say the uh, the marker, uh, the measurement of God's divine power. That anytime there's someone's faith needed to be recharged and they needed to come back to the place of complete surrender to God. They were reminded of the time that God did this thing. This is by far the most significant event in the history of Israel. So this morning we're going to look at it and we're going to look at some lessons. The final three lessons this morning are going to be very practical to the Christian journey, the Christian experience. And in the second part of this study on the passage through the Red Sea, we're going to see that the passage itself points to the resurrection of Christ. So this morning, what are the five lessons learned at the Red Sea? Number one, God's place of liberation is a place of unconditional trust. In other words, the place that God will lead us to free us will always require unconditional trust. Egypt is, uh, is and, and the army of Egypt is coming in, breathing down the necks of Israel, if you will. They are in a wilderness where there is no way they could outrun Pharaoh's army, and they are backed up against the sea. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning. God himself had brought them there. It was the cloud that had led Israel to this exact place. And in the opening of our text, the Lord had told Moses, this is where I want you to stay. One of the places that the Lord told Moses they would be was between Piheroth, which means literally the place of liberty. It was no mistake they were where they were at. And yet it seemed as if they were about to be destroyed. The place of true liberty... The place of truly being set free by God is always a place of unconditional trust. It's unconditional in that there are no other options. There is nowhere else to turn. What could Israel possibly do here? And Here's an important lesson about how God brings us to the place of change. In almost every situation, as long as there's another option, we will choose it before we choose God. I'm going to demonstrate in a moment the foolishness of the human heart. 
But I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, that that is a true reality of mankind. We are wicked at our core. We are stubborn and rebellious. And the reality is that in most cases, so long as there is another option, we will always take the other option before we choose God. And when God's ready, if you will, to bring us to that place of deliverance and freedom, he brings us to a place that requires unconditional trust. This is it. Either he saves us or we die. Either he saves me or I die. Either he fixes it or it is doomed. Either God intervenes or it is all over. We've got to get to that place in our understanding of where we stand with God before we will ever truly experience the freedom that only God can give. I'm a true believer that this is one of the reasons that sometimes people who have fallen the farthest are those who are most radically saved. Those whose lives are in complete, total, utter shambles when they finally come to that breaking point of unconditional surrender. They tend to be the ones that don't go to the left and don't go to the right. They just straightforward all the way. And that's because so many others have never really come to that place of unconditional trust. For so many people, God was just kind of like, an option, that maybe if I choose this option, life will be even better than it already is. For some people, they saw God as a means to an end. They just wanted the favor of God to help them accomplish their own personal selfish goals. And you will find that at any point in time that we come to God without unconditional trust, that our hearts will just waver back and forth and up and down depending on whatever we're facing. In order to bring these people to the greatest deliverance that the nation had ever known, God would bring them to the place of their greatest need. This is where miracles happen. This is the stage upon which God steps up and works. When there is no other person, there is no other thing, there is nothing in this world that can help us but Him. The second thing I want us to note from our text is that God is in divine control of his enemies. In verse 3 and 4, God tells Moses that Pharaoh's already started thinking to himself, why did I let the people go? The rest of the Egyptians have begun thinking to themselves the same thing. He says, so I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to come after you. Here's what we see, guys, is that God is in control of his enemies. Divine control. I don't fully understand the, and I don't think any human being will ever fully understand the link between human free will and the sovereignty of God. On one hand, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had already been thinking to themselves. They had already said to themselves, why did we let these people go? On the other hand, God said, I'm going to harden their hearts, and I'm going to make them follow you in. Here's the lesson. God's in control of everything, brothers and sisters. He's not necessarily the one that makes everything happen. He's not the one that forces evil people to do evil things. But make no mistake about it, evil people are not in control of God. God is in control of all things. And when the time came, there's always a time with God when he says enough is enough. 
You might read that text and be like, well, this is pretty harsh. This is unfair to the Egyptians. God would harden their heart, draw them into the waters, and then drown them. Yes. But do not forget, God gave these exact same people time and time and time and time and time again and again and again and again and again. Did I say that 10 times? Remember? God had already brought 10 plagues. God had already demonstrated that he was God of all of heaven and earth, God of the sky, God of the waters, God over Egypt's little gods, God over Pharaoh, God over death. He had demonstrated over and over and over again he was God. And over and over and over again, these people refused to accept that. And here we see them making up their own mind. They're going to track down Israel and try to recapture them. And God says, enough is enough. It stops here today. I'm going to harden their hearts and I'm going to ruin every plan that they have and I'm going to march them right into the sea after you all and I'm going to make that sea crash right back on top of them. Here's what I want us to understand, brothers and sisters. Our God is in divine control even of his enemies. And for those of us that live in this world in this day and in this time, that should give us great comfort You need to know that God is still God over the pharaohs of the earth, even today. There is not anybody that God does not have the power in a moment to deal with if he so chooses. Note the foolishness of mankind here. How he disregards every warning. How quick Egypt was to forget the death and destruction they had just endured. Did Pharaoh really think that he would overtake God's people? The answer is yes. He really did. Trust me, had he and the rest of this army known what was going to happen, they never would have went. He really thought that he was going to win. We see the incredible contrast between the Pharaohs of this world in wisdom and power compared to our God. First, in wisdom. I mean, we've already discussed the absolute foolishness of Pharaoh and the Egyptians' plans. But consider the wisdom of God, that God would devise a plan in which the exact same thing that would deliver his people would be the exact same thing that would bring destruction to the enemy. It's mind-blowing. The wisdom of our God. Consider the power of our God. We've got Pharaoh marching in with armies and chariots and horses and all of their weapons versus a God who has the power to take an entire sea and spread it apart. There's not even a comparison To even try to somehow compare one power versus the other is like trying to compare the strength of an elephant versus an ant. They're not even in the same hemisphere. Our God is wise above all rulers of the earth. He is wise above all armies of the earth. And bless God, He is powerful, not just above any army of the earth or just above any king of the earth. He is powerful above all the armies of the earth and all the kings of the earth together. 
Consider the amazing turn of events when we think about God's wisdom and power. Israel thought it was over. The enemy thought it had won. They thought the people of Jehovah were defeated. Yet all along, God was in divine control. It was the exact same way at the cross. God's people thought they were wrong. This must not have been the Son of God. This must not have been the Messiah. Darkness fell on the land for three hours as the Son of God hung there blameless on a cross. And all of God's enemies thought it was over. Yet, God was in divine control the whole time. Jesus didn't stay in that grave. He didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the grave, defeating death, hell, and grave, and came out the conqueror of conquerors. We need to understand again today, church, that our God is in divine control, and we have nothing to fear. But that leads me to my third point this morning. And this is where I was going to get practical today. Practical to your individual living. The object of your focus will become the object of your faith. The object of your focus becomes the object of your faith. So we read it in verses 10 through 12, the miserable failure of Egypt, right? The Egypt's like, oh, we're all going to die. It'd be better if we were back in Egypt. This is an embarrassing uh, moment for these folks. Keep in mind that they had every reason to believe God at this point. Every reason. They had watched God divinely bring destruction upon the land of Egypt while sheltering them. These very people had watched the death angel come over Egypt just literally days before, and, and, and God had divinely delivered their firstborns. They had every reason to believe God, and in this moment, their unbelief and their fear is utterly inexcusable. And yet, here they are, and I ask the question, how much are we like they? How quick are we to forget God's divine deliverance? How quick are we to forget God's hand of power that he has demonstrated over and over and over again in our lives? I want to ask the question, why? Why are we quick to forget? Why did Israel make this inexcusable mistake? The answer is found in Exodus 14.10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. I'm going to say this again, the object of your focus becomes the object of your faith. In other words, your, the object of your faith, that's what you believe in. They begin to focus on the army of Egypt, and all of a sudden, they begin to believe in that army. 
It's going to destroy us. It's powerful. There's nothing that we can do. See, they begin to focus on the army. They begin to focus on Pharaoh. And when we begin to focus on our circumstances, on the Pharaohs of this world, on the problems that surround us, it will have the exact same impact every single time. It will cause us to want to roll over in fear. This is a really important lesson right now that many of you under the sound of my voice need to hear today. I'm going to say it and I'm going to hammer it and it's going to make some of you mad. Some of you all need to quit watching Fox News so much. Now, I'm not saying you need to watch CNN more. Do not misunderstand me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to switch where you're getting your news. What I'm saying is you need to quit focusing on all that's so wrong all the time. Sitting all cooped up in your house all day long focusing on the pharaohs of the world and this army and that army and this bad man and this evil man. There will always be evil people amongst us. Wake up. The world ain't any different today than it's always been. And if you're going to focus on it and you're going to sit around and stew on it all day long, every day, you will be absolutely robbed of your peace. And that's your choice. You can choose to be despondent and in despair and anxious and worried the rest of your life if you want to as a child of God. That is your choice. But understand it comes by a conscious choice to focus on all that is wrong. That's your choice. People who, that is their story, they often look at the few, that I will say the few of us, that don't live in that defeat, don't live in that fear, don't live in that despair. And you know what they think? They think, oh, you just got your head stuck in the sand. You don't know what's going on. No, I don't have my head stuck in the sand. It's just my gaze is a little higher than yours. I don't stop looking up when I see all that's wrong on the earth, I just gaze a little bit higher and look up to the throne where my God still sits and I'm reminded He is God all alone. He's God on the throne. He's God of heaven. He's God of earth. And if He is for me, who else can be against me? The object of your focus becomes the object of your faith. And when you focus on all that's wrong and all the circumstances and all the evil in the world, what happens naturally, your nature begins to tremble in fear. Look at how far unbelief will take your mind. In Exodus 14.11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? How absurd is this reasoning? I mean, the, the, the reasoning of unbelief is absolutely absurd. First of all, God had already led them out of Egypt. Let's just keep that in mind. They, even though Egypt's coming after them, just keep in mind, there has already been a moment when Egypt said, get out of here. God has already led them out. He has led them here by the pillar of cloud and of fire. 
He has done so by his own power and his own might, which they have witnessed with their own eyes. But number two, consider how absurd this question is when we are reminded that God had already promised them that they would worship him on Mount Horeb. This is where it all started back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, When God shows up to Moses at the burning bush, one of the things God tells Moses is that not only is he going to lead the people out of Egypt, but that they would also worship on Mount Horeb. That hadn't happened yet. And these people knew that's where they were headed. They knew that this is where this was leading. Listen to me carefully, though. Where faith is not exercised, Even the promises of God bring no comfort. You want to focus on all that's wrong on the world and all the pharaohs and all the bad and all the negative? Even the promises of God bring you no comfort. You can have somebody like me sit in front of you all day long and quote promise after promise after promise, and you're just like, but you don't hear me, preacher. There's bad people out there. Until we get our eyes off of the enemy and we get our eyes on the Lord, we'll never find the comfort of God's promises. Don't miss one of the lessons here about true spiritual living. We must not expect that the path of faith is an easy one. It's not easy. The real path of faith, it's not easy. Faith must be tested. We have to learn the sufficiency of our God. Listen, all of us want great miracles. We just don't want to have to face the need for them. Huh? All of us want testimonies to be able to tell the whole world of God's power and God's strength to deliver. We just don't want to be anywhere we need God's power and strength to deliver us. But real faith, it's a test. And there are places, remember, I've said it over and over already, that God himself will lead us, that will force us to say, there's no other option but God, you've got to save. And when he does, we can testify that our God is there. He is sufficient. He is all-powerful. He has never left us. He has never forsaken us. He has been with us right through it all. Number four this morning, notice that some people are really just runaway slaves. Exodus 14, 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. The hearts of these people were still in Egypt. I'm going to tell you a lesson that I've learned about ministry an important lesson for everybody to learn that ever wants to really be engaged in ministry, whether it's personal ministry, witnessing, trying to reach your neighbors for the Lord, ministry of any, any sort. I've learned that not everybody actually wants to be free. Not everybody does. Everybody says they do, but trust me, not everybody really does want to be free. There are people that are completely, totally satisfied with being slaves. And these people reminded Moses... Hey, we originally told you to leave us alone. We wanted to stay there and be slaves. It was better there when we were slaves. Yet, 
here they were. So why'd you leave then? Why didn't you just stay? Why didn't you just pledge allegiance to Egypt? The real answer is they thought they were going to get out. They thought it might be better on the other side. But as soon as they got out, they realized freedom wasn't exactly what they thought it was going to be. And really, they hadn't decided one way or other in their heart what they wanted. They were just runaway slaves. There's a lot of people that show up at church who are just runaway slaves. Just tired of the oppression, tired of the pain of living out in the world, tired of the consequences of living in that old life as a slave to sin. But really, when you get to God's place, when you get to the place that God says it's now or never, they're ready to turn around and go right back. Why would somebody want to remain a slave? Well, first of all, there are some benefits of being a slave. There's, there's, there's a reward for it. For one, you know exactly what every day is going to be like. I mean, you know. It's dictated to you. No need to live by faith there, folks. You know exactly what I'm going to I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm going to do what I'm told, and I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to follow the, 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 the dictates of this ruthless master. And I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it the day after, and I'm going to do it five years from now, I'm going to do it ten years from now. There's, there's a certain reward that comes with at least I know how. You know, I came from a culture of extreme poverty, drug abuse, drug addiction, alcoholism, and that was all that I knew. It's God's honest truth that when God called me to Derby, I didn't like being here. It took me time to recognize, number one, my perspective of people was wrong. But hear me out, because I'm talking about being a slave. You know, even as a slave, you, 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 you grow a sense of comfort with your culture. I knew, we knew, I knew, we knew, my people, we knew what it was to be poor. We didn't know what it was to have enough money that you need to try to plan with it somehow. So you know what we did every year? We got tax returns. We blew it in a week because it's a whole lot more comfortable being broke. I knew how to live broke. I knew to live not knowing exactly how I was going to pay my bills in two weeks. But I certainly didn't know how to plan. I knew how to live with that type of people. I knew how to communicate with that type of people. You put me around people that seemed to live smarter than that, that seemed to have their head on their shoulders, that understood wealth and, and working and all that type of stuff, and I felt like a fish out of water. So for me, it was more comfortable to be a slave to the land of poverty. I've watched before women that have been in abusive situations that allow themselves to be hurt and wounded over and over and over and over again. And a lot of times, like there's a line that's crossed, and, and, and they run away. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to deal with it anymore. But you get them away long enough, they kind of forget, or they feel very uncomfortable in this new world, and they go right back either into the exact same relationship or they find another relationship that's very, very similar. There's something emotionally going on here, brothers and sisters. There's something broken in the soul. Where when we've become familiar long enough with being a slave to something, there's a reward for that. At least I know how to do it. And it's 
it's a fearful thing to try to step into another world I don't even know how to live in. Yeah, there are rewards. There are payoffs to giving in to our addictions, giving in to the things that have held us captive for a long time. And there are a lot of people who show up that are really no more than runaway slaves. They're a little bit tired of the world that they've lived in. They're a little bit tired of how hard it is and how painful it is. But they really, and, here, and here's the reality of it, they don't realize that no matter what world that you choose to live in, you're going to serve a master of some sort. And that's what the Bible teaches us. It says you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, but you've got, you've got to choose one. It's not that you can have none. And they, these people weren't quite ready for how this new master led them. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't cruel at all. But my goodness, he led them to some places that were confusing. What are we doing here? How did this happen? God, why, 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 why? Back there, we didn't have any questions. Every day was the same. We didn't have to walk by faith back then. This morning, a lot of folks are just runaway slaves. People fear freedom. They fear the unknown. And the bottom line is this. They just weren't fighters. That's the real reason they were slaves in the first place. At some point in time, you've got to get some, you, when you need something that you've got to break, break, break out of, you need to recognize God's willing to help. God will leave, lead you to that place of freedom, but it's going to be a place of unconditional trust. You're not always going to understand it all. Every single thing isn't always going to make sense. You're going to have to trust this is what God has said. This is the word of God. This is the way God's people are supposed to walk. And so, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to go in the way of of, of sinners, but I'm going to go in your way, God. And wherever it leads is wherever it leads. Number four this morning. Number five, excuse me. I want us to finish looking at four commands that lead us during our time of need. Okay, so I've spent the entire sermon so far really building up to this point, dealing with the reality that we are quick to forget God, we are quick to forget His power, that we we are capable of getting to a place where God has led us out of Egypt he has led us, he has, he has saved us from the death angel. He has protected us from, from the most violent of the plagues that came upon everybody else. We've seen his divine power, and still we, 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 were, we worry and we fear and we doubt. So I want to close with a really positive, like, so how do we not do that? How do we live in a place where peace rules my heart? How do I live in a place where truly at the midst of the sea, I've got the mindset in the heart of Moses? There are four commands that we have to follow. Three of them are found simultaneously, like, or excuse me, consecutively, one after another in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Here's the first thing, fear not. Moses told the people to quiet their hearts before God and fear not. This is a command, and it's not based upon 
knowing anything in the future. It's not based upon the army has been disappeared. It's not fear not, for the army has disappeared. Fear not, for there is no need for faith. Fear not is a command. It is a choice. Fear not is what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. That's what God told Joshua as they were about to conquer the, uh, go in and conquer in the promised land. Fear not is what God told Gideon. Fear not is what David told his son Solomon. Isaiah said, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come. Fear not was what the angel told Daniel. Fear not, little flock, is what the Lord says to us. And the psalmist in 23 and 4 says, I will fear no evil. But how is this obtained? I believe the most simple statement in all of the Bible that teaches us how to fear not is Isaiah 26.3. And here's what it says. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's the same thing I've been saying over and over and over again this morning. Depends what your mind is stayed on. Depends what you think on all day long. Depends what your eyes choose to be focused on. You keep, God keeps us in perfect peace when our mind is stayed on him. But brothers and sisters, this is the command. Fear not. Everything that follows... I'm going to teach you a spiritual process this morning that leads to peace and it leads to seeing the deliverance of God. It, leaves, it leads to forward movement, but it starts with choosing to fear not. It is a choice. And so long as you're going to be gripped by fear with everything that's going on around you, you might as well hit pause and get that thing done in your life. Learn how you're going to get over that. Because everything that goes forward, it does not apply to you. You cannot do what I'm about to tell you so long as you're gripped by fear. Number one, fear not. And then, number two, stand still. All attempts at self-help must end. All activities of the flesh must cease. This is the right attitude in the place of trial. And how impossible is this to the heart gripped by the flesh and gripped by fear? You know what the natural man does? The man or woman who's controlled by their own flesh? Anytime that we see problems coming our way, we have to do something. And trust me, those of you that sit around and fear monger all the time, you're constantly worried about what needs done, what needs done, what needs done. We need to do something, do something, do something, do something, do something, do something. And just like the people of Israel, you're terrified because there's nothing we can do. The problem's so huge, there's nothing we can do. This is what the flesh does. It's a doer. It's one of the greatest indicators 
that you're not really being led by the Spirit in your time of trial is all you can focus on is what you can't do or what you think you should do. Do, 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 do. Here's what God said, be still. In fact, he later tells them the only thing you need to all do nothing except be silent. Like that was their actual action, to stand and be silent. How impossible is this truth to be received by the fleshly mind? How impossible is this to the heart, still controlled by the thoughts and the sight of the natural man? But God says this is the way. Fear not. Stand still. All of your actions have to cease. Everything you think you can do needs to cease. Because there are no fleshly answers to divine problems. There's none. No matter how much we try to sanctify our actions, we'll call them good works. We have a way of Christianizing and justifying all of our rebellion. We'll call them good works, whatever you want to call them. Baptize them however you choose. In the end... When we are facing divine problems that we think we can come up with human solutions to, it is only proof of our unbelief. You have to fear not, and you have to stand still. Number three, see. Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now this seeing is a spiritual seeing. In fact, in the Bible, what we see by faith is never what is visible to the natural eye. I want to, I want to see that because uh, I want to kind of, I want to spend some time on this. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, now faith is the certainty of things not seen. So in the Bible, to be spiritually blind is to be unable to see the things of God. And trust me, when you can't see the things of God and all that you can see is what your natural eye can see, you will be gripped by fear. It's exactly what will happen. It's just it's, there's no other way. But you get your eyes off of Egypt, you get your eyes off of Pharaoh, you get your eyes up to heaven and you choose to fear not, and then you are willing to stand still and stop trying to figure out a solution in your flesh to divine problems, then and only then will you ever begin to actually have that spiritual vision and see what God is doing. Look what Hebrews eleven thirteen says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar off. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. We look to the things that are unseen. What a strange paradox to the natural man. Nonetheless, the lesson is unmistakable 
To see spiritually, we must first stand still. All fleshly activity must cease. We have to learn to be still before God. Notice the future tense in verses 13 through 14. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. How this confirms what has just been said. God's salvation has to first be seen by the eye of faith before it will ever be seen with the eyes of sense. Look at the final words of verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Think about that. 600,000 men could be warring men. That might not even include all the men, but at the very least, 600,000 men plus women and children, millions of people. Imagine all of a sudden going from that place of fear and they're panicking, it would have been better for us to die, to all of a sudden complete silence in front of their enemy. What, what a sense of confidence. You'll find one of the greatest true signs of confidence is the ability to be utterly fearless and completely silent in the face of danger. Because in reality, if God is for us, I'm never really in danger. I mean, no matter what comes my way. We'll look at this next week when we see the parallel between death and the resurrection and the Red Sea. But even death has lost its sting for me. For the child of God, do you realize death is the very portal by which we get to see our Savior face to face? Come on. If you want to see the things of God, you've got to learn to stand still. And then number four, we see in verse 15, Moses tells the people to go forward. This is the fourth spiritual progress here. First, you've got to fear not. Then you got to stand still. Then you see. Then you go forward. This is not a contradiction. This is a divine order. Until you have first learned how to fear not, until you have next learned how to stand still and cease all the activity of the flesh, until you have next learned how to see with the divine vision that God has given of what He's doing, you will never really know how to move forward forward with God. And note that before there was any moving forward, there was a focus on the promise. We've already read it, but I want you to look at it with the emphasis on the promise in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will work. There was no moving forward until first they had divine direction from God. You see, this was a step of obedience. This was a step of faith, not a step of the flesh. I want to note 
two things about the walk of faith that God has called all of us to, and I'm going to close this morning. First of all, let's, let's look at where God was leading Israel specifically. In verse 22, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. That's where he was leading them, into the midst of the sea. And we learn something about how they went into the midst of the sea in Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. So it was by faith that they entered into the Red Sea. What does that mean? So I'm going to tell you something that I believe. First of all, the Bible is clear that faith is seeing the unseen. That faith is not guided by what the natural eye can see. Look what Psalm 119.105 says. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know what that means? It means that God's word never shows us the complete end to where we're going. Like, we don't know how to get there. You have to be willing to walk forward in the light that God has given you before he's going to give you any more information about what's further down the road. If you can see the end with your natural eyes, then it doesn't require faith. So here's what I believe. I really do believe what I'm about to tell you. I believe with all my heart that the sea parted in a V. That's what I believe. I could waste the next five minutes of your time proving to you why I believe that biblically. I mean, I think there's a lot of proof to that based upon the way that things are worded on how the seas parted. But I also believe that because faith requires us to trust God, I don't believe that God took the sea and parted it completely all the way through where they could see all the way on the other end. Oh, well, that's where we're headed. I think it was a massive V, and it was obviously unmistakable that a divine miracle had occurred, and this is where God was leading them, and that as they begin to march in, it continued to part for them as they marched forward. That's what I believe. And here's the lesson. If we're going to advance in our faith, if we're going to learn how to get to and live in the spiritual promised land that God has promised to his sons and daughters, we must learn to move forward understanding God's never going to show us every specific detail of what's going to happen between here and there. You just got to trust God and move forward. There are so many people that stay stuck in their faith. They know really where God's leading them, like what the goal is, but they're afraid if I take this step and I do this, I don't know what's going to happen. Come on, God called Abraham out of the land of Ur and said, get up and get out of here and just head towards the land that I will show you. Like, I'm not even going to show you now or tell you where it is now. Just get to moving. God shows Joseph in a dream that I'm going to take you and I'm going to lead you to become the second highest in land of Egypt. And ultimately what God shows Joseph is that your whole family is going to bow down to you. You're going to be this place of power. What God didn't show Joseph was everything that would have to happen between there and when it actually took place. When God sent Samuel to go anoint King David, 
And Samuel pours the oil out on David as a pretty young lad and anoints him king. David knows that God has a call on his life that will ultimately lead to him being king. But David had no idea everything that would happen between that moment and when he was truly crowned king. And the lesson is that when God calls his people forward, brothers and sisters, it always requires faith. And if you're going to wait to move your feet, and you're going to wait to be obedient to the things that God's called you to do, and you're going to wait to move forward until you can fully see how it's all going to play itself out, you will sit right where you are the rest of your life. You have got to learn to trust God. You don't need to know what step five, six, and seven from here are. What you need to know is what is step one today. And then you need to take that step. And when you take that step, God will then later show you step two. The other thing I want to note that's interesting about this walk. In verse 29, it says, The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. I don't know if that's ever stuck out to you, if you've ever even noticed it. But you could pump a pond dry in a day or two or three and it'll still be muddy for weeks it wasn't just that God parted the waters but he dried up the ground and here's what I want you to see while it would seem like this path of faith is a scary one Not only was God in control of it, but the very ground upon which they walked, he had made firm. You will never find yourself in a better situation than right in the middle of the will of God for your life. Sometimes it's going to be scary. Sometimes it's not going to make sense. Sometimes God's going to lead you places that you're going to scratch your head and say, "Why, why, why, why are we going through a sea? Why are we doing this? He's going to bring you to places where you're going to say, I've I've, I've never had to face this thing before. But here's what you need to know. Wherever God leads you is always solid ground. This is the promise for the sons and daughters of God that when we are following our God, He makes the way, He parts the waters, and He gives us dry ground to walk.